Amen. You may be seated. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor. I'm after uh, being last weekend um, uh, out at the Young Life Camp for, for Axe Man Camp. Um, it's great to be with you guys uh, today. Uh, that was a great weekend uh, for the guys just to kind of get away. Ladies, thanks for kind of holding the fort down. Um, we're going to be back in our series that we began two weeks ago uh, in the book of 1 John called Abide. Uh, and so hopefully on your way in, if you don't have one, you got one of these scripture journals. We just want to get God's word in your hand. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through uh, 2 uh, verse 2. And then we're going to be in your discipleship guide. This is something we just put together for you so you know kind of where we're at each week in the series. We're going to be in week 2 uh, which is abiding in uh, the light. And so this series, um, Abide, Life in Christ, Life with Christ, is really a letter uh, that, that the Apostle John wrote to uh, some churches, likely a church in Ephesus um, that he helped plant, uh, and he's writing to this church because he loves them, he cares about them, and in this letter, it's really kind of like a sermon, like like it's something he's preaching to them. It would have been read out loud in its entirety to them, and what he's trying to do in this sermon, in this series, is, is in some regards to answer the question about what does it actually mean to be a Christian? Right? I mean, something in you had you show up to church today. Something in you had you gather with other believers in Christ. And so when we talk about what does it mean to be a Christian, we're not talking about what you check on a census. We're not talking about the home you grew up in. We're not talking about are we in a Christian nation or not. Really, when he's answering this question, and his answer is going to always go back to a Christian is someone whose whole identity... So the Bible says is in Christ. So all the other identities, all the other things that you kind of place as markers for who you are are all subjugated, all underneath the identity of are you in Christ or are you not? Have you given Jesus your sin? Has he given you his righteousness? And even when I talk about that, I mean, if your faith is in Jesus, just know that is an instant identity change. You went from not being in Christ to being in Christ. You went from kingdom of light, king, or sorry, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of death and destruction, to kingdom of light and kingdom of life. And while that's a, an instantaneous like, change of identity, being a Christian is also a lifelong journey of progressively looking more and more like Christ as you live out this new identity, and less like your former self, more like Jesus. And we called this series uh, Abide because uh, when Jesus is about ready to go to the cross and he's teaching his disciples what does it mean to be a Christian, he uses this word abide over uh, and over again. And 1 John, I think, uses this word like 24 times. And so the word abide, just to recap, means to not depart, to be held, to be kept continually, to endure, to not perish, to remain as one to survive, and ultimately to live. And so that's what it means to have life in Christ, to to abide in Christ, to be held by Christ, to be kept by Christ, to endure in Christ, to not perish because of Christ, to remain one together as other believers because of Christ, to survive 
wrath and judgment and everything else the world throws at you and eternity has for you in Christ and ultimately to live in Christ. And so this, this book opens and in verses one through four, it ends in verse four, we looked at a couple weeks ago, and John says, hey, I just want you to know why I'm writing you this letter. He wants to know, why am I preaching you this sermon? And he says in verse four that I'm writing these things, I'm preaching these things, I'm teaching these things, so that our joy or your joy, depends on the translation, ours, yours, yours, mine, and ours, whatever you want, so that our joy would be complete, so that your joy would be full. And so if he's writing, hey, I want your joy to be full, he's acknowledging that our joy's not full, right? Like, we're like, I would like full joy. I feel like maybe 30% joy, which is like 70% sorrow, right? I don't know if, what the mixture is. Either way, the ratio seems a bit off, right? More joy. Anybody want to vote for less joy? Okay, good. If I saw like a bunch of hands, I'd be like, man, I mean, I know it's dark out, but come on. So what's keeping us from joy? Right? We know our joy is not full because we're anxious. We're angry. Maybe you're like, no, that's not me. I'm, I'm apathetic. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe you have adversaries. Maybe you are the adversary for someone else. And so all of these are downstream effects of sin in the world. Like, like sin's something that we need to talk about. Right? Like, like, like sin in our lives, sin in our hearts, sin in the world. So if you want to have joy, if we want to have joy, if you want to get to talk about joy, John's going to say here in these next verses, we're going to have to talk about sin. And you're like, whoa, 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 I, I want to talk about joy. Let's, let's get to that thing. Like I don't, I don't want to talk about sin. Well, we have to talk about sin because sin is what actually keeps us from joy. And let me be clear, I don't, I don't mean short-term pleasure, right? You can sin it up and enjoy it, Right? I, I'm not, I don't mean like a little bit of happiness. I don't mean like a good feeling, a good hit, a good like, yeah, that, okay. No, no, I'm talking about true, lasting, renewable, enduring, life-settling, eternity-changing joy. And sin is what keeps us from that. And so see, joy is lacking because sin is present. And we don't like to talk about sin. And you're like, well, I came to church. I thought maybe they'd talk about sin. I don't even know that we like to talk about it in, in the church. Right? We love to talk about freedom. We want to talk about salvation. We want to talk about joy. We want to talk about new life. Right? We want to talk about flourishing. Like, let's, let's, talk about, like, let's talk about leadership. That's fun. Help me in my business. Help me in my marriage. Help me in my parenting. Help me like understand what's going on politically. Help me understand, you know, like, like uh, you know, just how to navigate the world. Like, that's all fine. And good. But I don't want to talk about sin because that sounds icky. That sounds gross, right? And certainly, oh shoot, this is your first week here? Or this is the week I finally brought somebody? I wanted you to, like, let's do the life-giving message. Don't worry, I promise you there's going to be good news, Okay. But we have to talk about sin. We don't like to talk to unbelievers about it. We don't like to talk to the world about it. Because that means exposing failure when we want to walk in freedom. That means being honest about the condition of the world and the condition of our hearts, the condition of our lives. 
And, and we, don't, we don't like that. I mean, that, that's so, so challenging. And so we'd rather remain blissfully blind than see what is revealed. So, so we, we, we are okay talking about justice, but we don't want to talk about judgment because that's harsh. And so, I mean, we desire justice. We desire life. We want a just and right world. And so John, as he continues this letter in these verses we're about to look at, he's telling his church, hey, I want to talk to you about joy, but we're going to have to have a conversation about sin. And so John, in the verses previous, you can look it up last week or two weeks ago, rather, he's established his credibility. He's speaking with authority, um, and he's writing to these believers about the problem of sin. And we're going to look here at verses f- verse 5. He starts, even before he talks about you or me or us, he, I love that John just keeps going back to starting with God. So verse 5 says this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So God is light. Like he says, hey, hey, we told you the message about the good news of the gospel. We told you about salvation in Jesus Christ. And, and, And we want you to have your joy complete. And the message that we want you to get, the understanding we want you to have is that God is light and in him is no darkness. So he's proclaiming something true about God. He's proclaiming something true about life. And what he's saying is, despite what the world might tell you, we live absolutely in a binary world. There is a kingdom of light and life and joy, and that is the kingdom of God. And there is a kingdom of darkness and sin and lies and decay and death, and that is the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of the world. They say, hey, I want you to know which kingdom you're in. And furthermore, I want you to know which kingdom God is in. See, God is not only light, he says, He possesses no darkness. So, I mean, the last 10, 15 years of like prestige television, right? Good long series like, you know, Mad Men or Peaky Blinders or, you know, I don't know, whatever it is for you on HBO, Netflix, whatever, um, right? It's been the rise the last 15 years, what we call the anti-heroes, right? Breaking Bad, right? Like these guys or, or these gals who you're just like, I mean, I guess I'm for them because they're the lead actor in the show. But man, they're like, they're really complex. I mean, sometimes they do awesome stuff, but most of the time they're just dark. And so it's this idea of this anti-hero, this person who's really complicated, really complex. Like, I don't know whether I root for them or not. I, I don't know, like, I mean, do I want him to succeed? I mean, I'm glad they triumphed over that guy because those guys are really bad and he's kind of good sometimes. And so I think what, 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 like, this is happening in a cultural moment where we're detaching ourselves from the concept of a good God. And so I think when we think about God, we think he's like some sort of anti-hero. Like, God's pretty good. He gets it right most of the time. I mean, sometimes he makes mistakes. And sometimes, you know, he's got a dark side. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, like some of the things that happen there, sometimes God gets angry. And what John's saying is that this was creeping into the church a couple thousand years ago. And what John's saying is, before we can even talk about sin, let me just tell you, God is not a complicated anti-hero. In him is light. There is no darkness in him. I mean, we can't even, can't even wrap our heads around that because, right, God's not like an anti-hero. He comes 
He doesn't come with light and darkness. He's not complicated. He's not conflicted. And so, I mean, you can say God is love. You can say God is merciful. You can say God is just. God is kind. All of those things. But the biggest umbrella that encapsulates the characteristics of who the Bible talks about God, he says God is light. And spiritually speaking, in in kind of this this Greek-Roman world that John's writing in, light represents truth. Light represents purity. Light illuminates the world so we can see it clearly uh, around us. Light warms, light heals, light grows, right? You need light. Light allows us to navigate the path before us without stumbling, right? Ever tried to walk through your house when there's no lights on? Some of you don't have kids yet, so it's super easy, right? No, I mean, even in my house, I mean, I've got what's called, I guess it's called a floor drobe, right? That's where your wardrobe is on the floor because it just never, it just goes from laundry to, you know, okay. Like, I just stumble even out of my own bed, right? So with light, you can see things perfectly. You can see things, you know how to navigate the world. Conversely, darkness is, is lies or untruth. So if something isn't true, it is by nature dark spiritually. That's why as Christians, we, we say we don't want to lie, We don't want to tell lies. We don't want to agree with that which is not true. Darkness is error, that which is false. Darkness spiritually is ignorance of what is true and right is good. And what darkness does is it obscures the world so you can't navigate it properly because it looks different than it does in the daylight. Like, I need navigation on this one. I need somebody to hold my hand. I need need the lamp on my iPhone, right, just to make it to the bathroom. Like, no, you need light because darkness obscures the world. Darkness breeds decay. Right, we're in the Northwest. All of your houses have mold. All of them, right? You're like, no, no, I bet there's a spot. Because there's, it's dark here so often. Like, you never go, like, like, you don't go out to Arizona out in the desert and like, that's kind of moldy and musty. No, because there's light there. Darkness paralyzes us in our path. And so John's telling this church, he's saying, hey, no, like walk in the light. Like there's no darkness in God. And so he's saying God is light. But, but then when you think about, okay, God is light, then we have to kind of assess, well, where, where are we in this deal? Because I hate to break it to all of us, just a, maybe a weekly reminder that we're, we're not God. And so we don't get to say in us is light and no darkness. Right? We need to seek and abide in, be held in continually in the light. So John's writing this church, and he knows that, that what's happened in his church, so he's in his 90s, so he probably planted this church 30, 40 years ago, and, and like people are kind of trucking along, they're like, yeah, we're on Team Jesus, but then they're in this, this Greek and Roman culture that's just giving them all these spiritual messages all the time, and it's starting to erode what we would call gospel truth, where lies are coming in to the community of faith, lies are coming in to the church, and what's happened about lies is that they sound really good, and they're, they're really affirming. They're really inclusive. They promise freedom, but they come at the expense not only of what is right and true and good, but ultimately they will rob us of joy because they keep us from abiding with God who is light and life. And so John knows if they're not combated or at least confronted, these lies can begin to take root in our lives and they impact uh, and infect our actions and may even, I don't want to scare you too much, impact your eternity. 
So John's going to lay out in these next verses three ways that we get sin wrong, three lies that we tell about sin, and he's also going to give three remedies for us in Christ. So that's what we're going to do in the remainder of our time. Part one, lie number one, John, 1 John 1, 6 and 7, that sin can coexist with God. He says this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so number one, how do we get sin wrong? We get sin wrong when we believe that sin can coexist with God. It says it right here in the text. If we say we have fellowship with God, we're good with God, us and God are good, God's light, we're in fellowship, partnership, communion with him, but you're walking in, which means living out a life of darkness, it doesn't work. He's saying that you're getting sin wrong. You're thinking somehow that, that sin, separation from God, brokenness, breaking God's laws, not meeting God's standards, harming yourself, harming others, the, the world harming itself, that somehow that's all well and good and you can still be in perfect union with the God who's light, who's truth, who's pure. And so, it's this manner of life that you have that we have that's in darkness. There's no concept of holiness or that somehow God gets to define what's good. So we all say, hey, we're all good with God, but then we just come up with whatever functional morality we want. Like what's popular with the world? What's convenient or easy for me to navigate the moral situation I just found myself in? with the least amount of pain in the short term for me, and certainly no shame from anyone else, or shade, right? See, this doesn't work because God's not just in the light. God is the light. So we, you and I, we don't get to define what is right and what is light. God gets to. Paul, at one of his letters to the churches, says, what fellowship can light have with darkness? See, a fellowship of light and darkness, um, I, I, I mean, it's, it's not too hard to conceive of because, right, if, if like dark is, is like dark, right, and light is bright and white, like I think part of why we get bummed or maybe just how I get bummed here in the Northwest is it's May 7th and I'm looking at the fellowship of light and darkness outside because it's still gray, right? There's a reason nobody likes gray because it's light, Light, life, joy that's been dimmed by darkness. Or it's darkness with a little bit of light thrown in. See, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not congruent. And so the lie we tell is this. We, we, why, who or, or why we lie? We lie to God and others. See, we lie to God and others because it's impacting our actions. We don't practice the truth it says. We're saying to God and others, hey, I can do whatever I want. I can walk out darkness. I can walk in what the Bible would call sin. Um, I, can, I can do all of these things, and I'm still good with God. In fact, you can too. See, this is super, super popular. 
Because it might even be couched in the idea of God's grace and mercy. Hey, God's grace is sufficient to cover my sins. Like, I mean, this is functionally how I lived in college in my years after because I was a full prodigal son, fraternity rush chairman, just, just doing all the things you imagine just a really like turd Ferguson church, or, you know, fraternity guy would do. And uh, yeah, that's a phrase. Okay, turd Ferguson, you can use it. And I would just tell myself, hey, I mean, God's good with me. Because like, I, I mean, he, he pays for sin, so I can just send it up tonight. I can send it up tomorrow night. And then like, because I was like a rush chairman, which means like you're in sales and you're kind of like trying to get guys to join, I would specialize in meeting Christian kids and telling the Christian kids, they're like, you know, I don't know, like I kind of grew up in the church and I feel like, like, like this fraternity, like you have Greek letters and kind of seems like, like the Greeks and the Romans and like, I mean, it kind of just seems like a little slice of Babylon. They never said it like that, but like, they're like, I just don't see how this lifestyle fits. I was like, oh no, it's cool. Totally cool because Jesus died for my sins. He died for years. So, dude, come, in, come party. Let me drive you up to Canada and, and, and you know, take you out to a club, and maybe you'll join the fraternity. I don't do that anymore, in case you're wondering. Like, my life's changed. I follow Jesus now. This is not my job. Just want, want to get to the punchline, in case you're wondering if, like, is this still, is still what he does? I mean, he said there was a youth camp, like, up north. Is that what he was talking about? No, that's not what we're doing. Right? But it's super popular. Because it let me off the hook, and it lets other people off the hook. So you Like, you just don't have to walk in the light. And, and, and it, what it does is it's telling a lie about who God is and how seriously he takes sin. And you end up lying to others. Hey, I believe right things about God, but it doesn't illuminate or guide or direct my path. So, I mean, for me, like, there just wasn't a moment in my life where I was like, I don't like Jesus. I just acted like it for a decade. And so it's saying I'm a Christian, but nothing in my life looks like someone who's walking in the light. My life looks no different than those who don't know or don't follow Jesus. And so it presumes that sin's not a big deal, that sin doesn't need to be taken seriously, and, and certainly that the idea of repentance isn't necessary. See, God's remedy, as we see here in a moment, his remedy for this lie that sin doesn't separate us from God, um, his remedy for us in Christ is three things. It's repentance, it's community, it's being cleansed by communion with Christ. So you see this right in the text. See, John sets this all up. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie, we don't practice the truth, meaning living out the truth. But verse seven, but if we walk in the light, as he's in the light. So what's, what's walking in the light if not repentance? Turning from a path of darkness, turning from a path of sin, walking in a new path that is illuminated by God, that is a path of light, a path of holiness, a path of purity, a path away from sin towards the life-giving presence of God. It's a change of direction, turning from darkness, turning from the lies we believe, the errors we've ingested and beginning a new path, taking steps away from our old path, walking out what God says is good and right and true. And then he says the, the result is of that repentance. It's interesting because he says, hey, you don't have fellowship with God because of sin. But now, now that you're walking in the light, he says, well, you not only have fellowship with God, you have fellowship with other believers. You used to be part of a community of darkness. 
You used to be part of a world full of lemmings walking towards destruction. You've now repented and you're now part of a parade of saved sinner saints on their way to a new kingdom. He says you have fellowship with one another. That one another he's talking about is other Christians. You don't have to walk this new path alone. In fact, you can't walk this new path alone. Those who love God have fellowship with him. They abide in him and they have fellowship with others who walk in the light individually and together as the church. And so that fellowship, that unity is around what's true about God, what's true about the gospel, what's true about light and darkness. Those that don't walk with God remain in darkness, isolated, trying to hide the sin they love from God and others. Conversely, if you're walking with God in the light, you're gonna experience transformation in your disposition towards both your sin and community. Because before you're like, no, I like my sin, so I for sure don't like community that might point out my sin, or at least reflect a different path that helps me see, "Uh uh-oh, that's a path to life. I'm walking down the path to destruction. But because you've repented, now you're walking on a new path. You, you hate your sin, and you now love and have fellowship with other co-laborers in the gospel, other Christians. And then he says, we're cleansed by communion with Christ. See, I, I don't want you to get this wrong. Like, if, if you think, okay, I have sin, pastor says repent, be with other Christians. Okay, I'm going to not sin, and I'm going to go to church. I mean, sure, you should do those things. But he says your confidence isn't in your ability to gather with other believers. It isn't in your ability to not sin. Your confidence, our confidence, is not in our daily walk or our lives, but Jesus in our place. See, repentance is great and necessary. Community, great and necessary. But what actually allows us to have fellowship with God who is light is what Jesus Christ has done in our place. Like, he's like, no, no, you, you, you couldn't have fellowship with God because of the darkness of sin. We want you to have fellowship with God, so Jesus Christ takes your sin on the cross. He deals with the consequences of your sin. And then here, in verse seven, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus is your sacrifice for your sin. And what he did on the cross washed away the darkness. The darkness out here, the darkness in here. So when God sees you, he can welcome you into fellowship because he doesn't see the sin that you've committed. He doesn't see the sins that have been done to you. He sees you pure and clean because of the blood of Jesus Christ in your place. It's God's remedy to that first lie. Repentance, community, and communion with Christ. There's another lie, though. Verses 8 and 9 says this. This is the lie that we don't, that, that sin hasn't impacted us in any way. So the first is that, that, like, hey, you know, sin and God can coexist. This one is like, well, I don't really know that sin has impacted us. We don't have a sin nature. First John 1, 8 and 9 says this. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so how do we get sin wrong? Sin, we, we believe that sin is somehow not impacting us, right? First said sin isn't a big deal. This one is this idea that, that there isn't a sin nature, that somehow, like, like you're just born perfect and good as opposed to born impacted and infected by sin. And so like you begin to just kind of, like I just don't think I, like I don't even know that I'm capable of sin. I mean, if I'm true to myself, I mean, that would be the only sin would be to be inauthentic. And it's really getting back to what the Bible would call the original sin, which is pride. How do you see yourself in light of God? See, I just said at the end of the last section, right, that, that there's the cleansing power of the cross. I just want to be clear. You can't enjoy the cleansing nature of what Jesus did for you on the cross if you don't think you have sin that needs to be cleansed. See, this is a lie that says no matter what you do, you're still a good person. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I, I, I'm certainly really good at comparing myself to others, and I can always find somebody worse. Always. And when in doubt, you just throw out the Hitler card, right? No, this is so popular, I think... Um, in, in the stories we tell and the shows that are out there, just this ethos. You're not a bad person, right? You're a good person who does bad things. See, we're saying we don't have sin. What you're really saying is you're perfect just the way you are. You're like, well, I mean, I don't know about that, but, but if there is sin in the world, it's not yours. You're just a product of oppression. You've just experienced injustice. You were abandoned or abused when you were younger. All of those things may be true. Right? If there's sin, but it's, it's, not, it's not yours. Right? Nothing you do, you're responsible for. Anything you do in response to your trauma is acceptable. Or the, my, the, the fun one, right? It's just my personality. It's just the way I am, take it or leave it. I've got a really aggressive personality, so if you think I'm a jerk, that's on you. Right, there's no accountability. It misunderstands the depth of sin and impact in the world. And, and here's, here's what John says, who are we lying to? He says, we're lying to ourselves. What, what does he say here, verse eight? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Then when we get sin wrong, we walk in self-deception. We don't see ourselves act accurately. We don't understand our true nature. We see ourselves too highly. And so somehow like you come in today and you're like, oh, this message isn't for me because I don't have a sin nature. But man, that guy that hurt me, that gal that hurt me, that guy that cheated uh, you, you know, in business, that, that, that guy that cut me off, whatever, right? Like we all got them. Like, oh gosh, I wish they heard this one. I'm like, we, I, I need to hear this one. Like, we all need to hear, like, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of us have sin that is darkness that needs to be overcome by light. That all of us without Christ walk in spiritual death and we need to be given new life. Like I said, the biggest sin here is pride. 
And so we might say no one's perfect, but we lie to ourselves and don't have the truth in us when we're not honest with God and others about our individual spiritual condition and the sin that we have in our hearts. He says there's a remedy for this in Christ. And this one's challenging, guys. I'm just gonna, gonna be honest with you. This one's tough. His remedy for us in Christ is a word we don't like to use. Confession. Confession. He says your remedy is gonna be confession, the faithfulness of Christ, and his forgiveness. All right, verse nine begins, but if we confess... Right, that's where the turn is. You believe the lie somehow that, that sin hasn't impacted you, that, that you don't have a sin nature. The answer for that is a confession. You're walking in pride. You're walking in a lie that says you don't need God. The answer is honesty and humility. See, as Christians, you never have to deny our sin nature. You never have to say, well, I'm a Christian now, shoot. I sinned, or I feel like I have sinned, or I have conviction maybe. Uh, I, I, you know, we don't have condemnation if we're in Christ, but we can have conviction that I've been walking in a path that's not leading to life, that's harming others even. And so we don't have to pretend that we haven't sinned. Like the, do, like the Christian gospel says, God's good, made everything good, we've sinned, God answers Jesus, and he's gonna come back and renew and restore. So let's be honest about who we are. See, Christians, we get to admit what's true about ourselves, and then we get to receive forgiveness and grace. See, I think we misunderstand confession at times. Um, one of my pastor friends defined it this way. Confession is being honest with yourself and God about who you are and who he is. Confession is being honest with yourself and God about who you are and who he is. See, confession's not easy for us because it requires us to look at what's ugly inside of ourselves. It requires you to not say, yeah, the reason I did this was because of what they did over here, to say, oh, there's something in me that was extra reactive at that point. There's something I've done that, that broke my communion with God that, that helped me feel shame about myself and certainly distanced me from other people. See, we don't like confession and naming things and showing it to others, especially those we've sinned against or been the ugliest too because, because oh, that's so much harder. Like, if we do confess, we're like, okay, wait, can, can, I hope the pastor says something like, I can silently confess to God and never have to admit any fault to anybody else ever. Like, that's the easy one, right? God, thanks for forgiving me the way I harmed that person over there. Oh, Holy Spirit, you want me to apologize to them and ask for forgiveness? No, we're good though, right? Yeah, I don't, that would be hard. They might, they, might, they might respond badly. See, when, when we know that we've sinned against other people, it drives us to places of shame. Or we'd rather double down and just keep sinning or keep arming or keep putting up bricks on the wall rather than, than taking the step of unburdening ourselves and confessing and saying, you know, I was in the wrong in this situation. But instead, we like to do lots of games like, um, we like to apologize. You're like, can we, can we just apologize instead of confession? Because we like apologies. Um, I mean, here's some of my favorites. Um, uh, oh, I'm so sorry you feel that way. I am so sorry. 
Not for what I did, but for how what I did made you feel. Right? Oh, you've never done that one. Okay, I'm alone. All right. Or I'm sorry I did that because you did that. You know that I'm sorry that's really like, I want to accuse you of something, so I'll start by saying I'm sorry first. Or the, like, the, the faux authenticity, where you're like, hey, let me just confess, I really feel like, um, like I don't know, I, just, I feel like I didn't handle that argument well. So I'm sorry. Is there anything you'd like to apologize for? <laughs> I'm waiting. I have a list in case you were wondering. I prepared it. It's longer than mine. Right, we do this because we don't want to confess. We don't want to take ownership. No, that, that's just called blame shifting, guys. That's all it is. It's blame shifting. Not confession, not humility. See, confession's scary because we show weakness. We actually have to admit what we've been or done something wrong. And so confession is hard, but it's also necessary. And we don't like to confess because we think the confession is somehow a path that will lead to humiliation, right? I'd rather just cover this up, rather put some fig leaves on this and just hope nobody notices because I don't want to be humiliated. But as Christians, we understand confession differently because we, as Christians, we believe confession it doesn't lead to humiliation. It's the beginning of a path that leads to restoration and not humiliation, but ultimately to honor. The, the destiny of Christians in Christ is honor, not humiliation. And so you're like, well, I don't know if I want to confess because uh, other people will change the way they see me. I won't be respected anymore. My kids might not see me the same way. The people I work with might not see me the same way. Let me just tell you, you might be right. Confession might change the way others see you now, but know that confession absolutely doesn't change the way God sees you forever. Oh, confession can change the way people see you now, but it does not change the way God sees you forever. See, when you're confessing, you're not telling God something he doesn't already know. God's not like, whoa, thanks for telling me. I didn't really have a concept that that's what you'd done. Right? Like, God already knows. He just sees you out there covering yourselves with fig leaves, like trying to hide everything, trying to hold on. It's like, uh, maybe I'll make it through this season without anybody knowing about this. And he's just like, I just want you to agree about who you are, but I also want you to agree about who I am, God says. And God knows he's light. He's also gracious and merciful and kind. So God wants us to confess because he wants us to be unburdened with our sin. See, God knew about your sin before you did. And so by, by owning the fact you have sin, you're beginning a process of experiencing God's forgiveness and grace. That's, that's what happens in these verses here. He says the faithfulness of Christ, right? Confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Um, the Old Testament is scattered with promises that said God's gonna give us a new covenant, a new promise where he's going to forgive our sins. So we don't have to be fearful about confessing sin 
Because we're promised that we're granted forgiveness in Christ, that Jesus heals and Jesus forgives. And she also says, hey, Jesus isn't just like, hey, I forgive you of your sins because I'm like a big city district attorney that doesn't like, you know, prosecute crime anymore. Too relevant? Sorry, I was in Portland this week. You had to drive through Seattle. None of that happens here in beautiful Marysville. Okay, anyway. No, Jesus is just. Jesus is the embodiment of justice. He doesn't leave sin unpunished. He doesn't punish the innocent. So God's able to forgive and cleanse us because of what Jesus has done in our place. We can confess freely because we know in Christ we are forgiven freely. And that we get to experience forgiveness. The confession's a path to forgiveness where your debt of sin is paid, the stain is removed. And so confession requires us to have humility. Moving us from pride and self-deception to a place of forgiveness and righteousness. Okay. One more lie. One more remedy. Verses 10 through uh, 2.2 says this. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation of our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Okay, how do we get sin wrong? This one we get sin wrong, believing that you've never engaged in it. So the first one is sin and God can mix. The second one is that I don't really have a sin nature. This is that you've never sinned. I mean, we're just taking pride up one more notch here. It's this lie that fighting sin or avoiding sin isn't somehow part of the Christian life. So we say that I haven't sinned. And so we, we may come to a place where we're like, I know sin is bad, separates us from God. I know there's sin in the world. I've experienced it from others. And so this is the position that we find ourselves in often. And that is always the victim, never the victimizer. Always the one who's been harmed or been abused, but never the abuser. And so you're like, I know that there's sin in the world. It's impacted me, but I've never sinned against anyone else. It's back to pride. Everything you do is righteous or explained away or justified because you're a victim of sin, because you've experienced sin. So all I did was retaliate to the things that were done against me. Let me be really, really clear about this. You can sin in responding to the sin of others. I've seen it happen. I've seen marriages where there's been infidelity, where the other spouse found out about it, their answer was more infidelity. And let me tell you, that didn't lead to joy. That didn't lead to like, we're even, samesies. Ready to move on? No. It led to more pain, more compounded pain. It did not lead to greater joy. I know people who've been hurt and abused by leaders in the world and in the church who have in turn hurt and abused leaders in the church and others in the church. See, the lie is this. We're lying about God. 
We make God a liar, it says. It says we made him a liar because God's the one that sets the standards now and from the beginning and forever. And God says there's sin. He says that we've missed the mark. He says that we've broken his law. He says that we're bent out of shape. He says that sin hurts and has consequences. And so what we're doing is placing ourselves in the position of God saying, I am now the judge and arbiter of all sin. The way they sin and harm me, bad. I want justice. How do you respond to others? That doesn't matter because they hurt me. You're saying you know sin better than God does. And the lie says, leads to his word. Jesus is the word, not being in us, right? We make him a liar. His word is not in us. The word, Jesus is not in you. I know that's hard to say. Let me say it really clearly. If you continue to live in habitual sin, to walk in bitterness, running from God, not hating your sin, not battling your sin, not living in the light of who God is, not believing in Jesus, not believing that you need forgiveness, not believing that you need a sacrifice for your sin. This is John in this letter, graciously and lovingly, as simple as he can, saying, you are not a Christian. You are not following God. The word, Jesus, is not in you. You are then not in Christ. John wants clarity because he's living in a culture of confusion around sin where everyone thinks they're okay with God. Nobody wants to talk about sin or deal with sin. He's saying, hey, if that's your position, the truth is not in you. The word is not in you. You are not in the truth. You are not in the light. You are in darkness. And ultimately, spiritually and for eternity, that is a very hopeless place to be. You need to consider your spiritual condition. How you see sin. How you see God. And how you can rest in Christ. Without Jesus, there is no hope. Let me be clear, though, there's hope. There is hope in Jesus. Right? 1 John 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. His word's not in us. Immediately at the beginning of chapter 2, the remedy for us in Christ is Christ that you can resist sin and rest in Christ, that John, like this whole tone, he's kind of been going through these cycles. Here's the lie. Here's who you're lying to. Here's how we get sin wrong. Here's the remedy. And on this third cycle, he's like, hey, the word's not in you. But then he, he says, hey, little children. What he's saying is, the affectionate people I love and care for the people spiritually that have been in this family that I want you to see joy and have flourishing now and in eternity. He's pleading with them. My little children, this is a term of endearment. He's got so much affection. I don't want to see you walk in error. I don't want to see you believe lies. I don't want to see you not take sin seriously. I don't want to see you lose joy. I don't want to see you hurt one another. I don't want to see you suffer consequences in this life. I don't want to see you suffer for eternity without Christ and his people. He's begging them to repent. And he's saying there's so much hope. 
He says, my hope, the reason I'm writing you, little children, he says, is that you may not sin. So we talk about being on mission, making disciples who love God and love people. That part of that is hoping that there's not sin. And that's a, that's a great hope, and that's an aspirational thing. And where you are, find sin in your life, you should repent. You should confess. You should find community. You should walk in a new path. But don't not do those things because you're afraid of being condemned. Or you're afraid, well, I can't share my sin because well, that might mean I don't have the light in me. Or, I don't, man, this is a hard word. No, he says, there's so much hope for you. He says, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. This is John setting a courtroom scene. He's saying, hey, you're you're gonna get pulled over for sin. You're gonna have a court date for your sin. It's appointed humanity, man, to die once and face judgment. You're gonna end up in the courtroom. And and when you end up in the courtroom, you're you're not gonna have to... (laughs) You're not going to have to plead uh, insanity. (laughs) You're not going to get to say, well, let me advocate myself. I don't even know if I like this courtroom. I don't know if I accept the judge's jurisdiction here. No, he's saying when you go in the courtroom, you just shut your mouth because you've got an advocate. That means like an attorney, like a lawyer. You've got an advocate before God the Father. So the judge is also your dad. Congratulations! I don't mean the way your dad judges you, okay? I mean, right, my dad doesn't listen. To that. Okay. No, you, you've, the judge is your father spiritually. He wants you to thrive, he wants life for you, but he will take sin seriously. And so the advocate, the attorney you have, is Jesus Christ the righteous. Like, that's, that's mind blowing. That, the, that Jesus is the one that stands in the gap with us, for us, being, uh, between us and a perfectly uh, holy father. We've broken sin's law. We've broken God's law. Satan is an accuser saying, well, I know you've broken God's law and you're feeling condemned. And Jesus says, I'm your attorney. Don't worry, I've got it. And you're like, it says Jesus Christ. He's the advocate. Okay, that's great. He's sinless. And, and he's the righteous. I love that. Because as I was reading this this week, I was like, wait, like sometimes you can get a good attorney and get off, right? OJ had the dream team, right? Enough money, you can get yourself a lawyer and get off. Oh, but Jesus is Jesus Christ the righteous. Uh, What does your client plead? Jesus says, my client pleads guilty, your honor. Of all charges? Yeah, of all charges. And you're like, whoa, that's not what I thought was going to happen. Like, what's the strategy, Jesus? Like, how are we going to get around the law a little bit so you can get me off so I can get out scot-free? He's like, no, 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 we're going to own this. Yeah, my client's guilty of all charges. Okay, um, the, the wages of sin are death. That's the consequence. Yeah, I'm Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm his attorney. And then when he uses that word propitiation, right? It's a theological word. We don't use it very often. That's where the attorney says, yeah, I know. I'm taking the sentence. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to suffer for my client's sin. 
the wrath that he deserves, that you deserve, that we deserve for our sin, I'm going to take that on the cross. That word propitiation means absorbing wrath. It means atoning sacrifice. That our advocate, our attorney, is the one who absorbs not only our guilt, but takes our sentence. And you're like, I don't know if I like this idea of a wrathful God. Oh, no, no, I know you do. I know we're okay with that idea because anytime we've been sinned against, we want justice. Anytime we've truly been wounded or harmed, we want retribution. All of us have sinned against an eternal and perfect God. And we know when we've sinned that we need mercy and grace. So no matter how self-deceived you are, deep down you know you're not perfect. Deep down you know that you have fallen short and that you will have to suffer the consequences. But in Christ we don't have to. See, these verses provide both a call and a hope. The call is that when we sin, we only have Jesus to save us from God's wrath. Only Jesus saves And the hope is knowing that when we sin, we always have Jesus to save us from God's wrath, to make us clean, to forgive us, to welcome us into the family as we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. You're good for us. Lord, I know that there's there's hard words um, here in First John. I know there's hard words sometimes in our hearts. I pray that hard words would lead to soft hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would not let the enemy let people walk in condemnation, but that you would, that you would lead to confrontation, perhaps holy confrontation, conviction that leads to the comfort of the gospel. Lord, that we would see that in every aspect of sin, Yeah, there's lies, there's separation from you, there's self-deception, but the remedy is always Jesus Christ. God, that you know everything about us and you sent Jesus as our savior, as our advocate, as our sacrifice, and you call us to follow him as our Lord and as our king. Holy Spirit, where there's been sin in our lives, I pray that we would confess knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive. Lord, I pray for a gospel community God, where, yeah, we may, we may feel like people see us differently for a time, but we'd be rest knowing that you see us the same for eternity, and that is as sons and daughters. God, I pray that we'd be people who take sin seriously, but also be full of compassion, that we would be people who've been forgiven much, so we would forgive others, and that would lead to greater joy and flourishing now and for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.